Hold on. <laughs> you could be laughing. <laughs> Welcome to our latest edition of If You've Come This Far. My name is Sean, and I'm here with my partner, Chris. And so, Chris, who are we talking to in this episode? Uh, let's see. Um, the reason I'm laughing, first of all, is because uh, of your concerted effort to say if you've come this far um, without your Boston accent where it comes out if you've come this far um and so i hope everyone appreciates that as much as i do um as to who we get to speak with today um we uh we're 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 lucky to have our friend wes becton uh on uh for a conversation wes is a is a friend of ours uh is a friend of men living is a um a pickleball men living pickleball champion um with me and eric treese in the first year round which is when i first became acquainted with wes but i'll say that wes and i had an instant bond because uh you know the sean but i was a, a navy officer wes was an army officer so there's that bond there um wes is a coach he's a, a career and professional coach with in partnership with his wife um I've met Wes's son. Uh, uh, he's got two kids. His son is a super impressive young man. At one point, we aspired to have him on with his dad and perhaps with his grandfather, Wes's dad, who is another interesting part of Wes's story because uh, uh, his dad is a uh, is truly like a, a, a hero uh, of this country. I mean, he was a public servant, uh, serving in the army, becoming a, a general. And then beyond that, he, he worked... Uh, as a uh, superintendent of schools for DC public schools um, and then worked in, in a couple federal posts. Um, anyway, I think this in, informs the really cool, um, thoughtful guy that Wes is. And so we get to talk to Wes about, about coaching, about parenting, about the military and, uh, and about his dad a little bit too. So it's going to be fun. So all the cool things he, he is and he has done in his life in the first thing you talk about is it me being a pickleball champion? Really? Well, look, I'm not, I got, I have no, no shame whatsoever. I'm going to ride this, this fucking pickleball <laughs> championship. By the way, I have two of them now. Yes, I know you do. <laughs> back to back. I, I want to make sure back. everyone knows. <laughs> right, back to, do you have t-shirts that say back to back champ, <laughs> even though no one knows what the hell you're talking about? I have a trophy that I'm pretty sure Todd Adams paid less than 50 cents for, but, right. and yet it still sits proudly in my living room so yeah. only because we haven't moved it so uh, so uh, enough about you and your pickleball championship and uh let's let's listen to our discussion with our friend wes awesome shocker we'll go to half acre <laughs> <laughs> i can hit a golf ball speaking of golf yeah. uh did you see uh, you you may not have seen it but wes sent me the link to uh to a would we call it a blog post or just a do we call it a blog post you just posted it on LinkedIn, or did you post it on your website? Call an article. Call an article. article. So, Wes, um, Sean and I are both, while we've never played golf together, we both um, love to golf, can get around the track pretty well. We've we've each been told about the other um, and and aspire to to play better golf uh, always. Um, But Wes wrote this article because what prompted it was uh, Wes had a fucking eagle last weekend was it last weekend it was on saturday yeah wow yeah wow five five hundred and two yards uh 
nailed the tee shot, took out the three wood, 230 yards out, put it on the, uh, put it on the green and uh, made the putt. Yeah. But I was talking about all the different thoughts that were going through my head as I was thinking about making the putt and how my hands were shaking, my knees were shaking and why that happened and how that relates to our experiences in life. So, so I need to know a little bit more. I need to know how long the three wood was and how long the putt was. So the, no, the three wood was 200 and actually 34 yards. Okay. Long three wood for yep. me. Yeah. Uh, but then the putt was eight feet uphill, no break. <laughs> My playing partner was just outside me. So I'd seen the line, but I'm like, you know, this doesn't happen very often. Yeah. And so literally I'm standing over the putt. I had to back away because my hands were shaking. My knees were like, <laughs> what am I telling myself that's making me feel this way? So I go through all those different emotions, kind of that core energy leadership stuff. Basically, I got to the point, I'm like, you know what? It's a beautiful day. I know I can make this putt. Matter of fact, in my mind, I've already made the putt. I'm just going to walk up there and I'm not even think about missing. Because if I miss it, you know what? Hey, it's still a beautiful day. So walked up, made the most confident putting strength I ever did. Boom, we didn't take a pin out. So hit the pin. Boom, went straight down. That's awesome. Nice. Nice. You know, it's funny because well, birdie isn't bad either. Birdie's so, not bad I mean, either. But when I you mean, get a straight uphill eight footer for Eagle, I mean, this is the thing I was thinking when I was reading your article, Wes, is what one of the thoughts that would have crept through my head is like, I wish this was downhill left to right by two feet. So I'd have an excuse after I miss it. Right. <laughs> because but see but see you know in that statement and again my mind went there but there's fear worry doubt oh yeah hopelessness yeah all that stuff that gets in the way of us showing up as that guy that can make the putt and so i've made eight foot putts before like i said in the article i've made eight i've made 20 foot putts before so why can't i make this putt so yeah anyway it, it is a good little life lesson i i uh i have imagined on multiple occasions and only half jokingly uh writing a book one day called everything i know about leadership i learned on a submarine mm -hmm. but, but i've learned a lot on the golf course too uh and of course you learn yeah. everywhere but um but it is funny i, lo I love how you captured all those fears because a lot of times that's that's what that's holds right. us up right that's guys. That's guys telling themselves that they're not good enough. There's guys playing the victim and saying, you know what, no matter what I do, it doesn't matter. I'm never going to be able to accomplish that. You know, all those people are better than me. I can't possibly put myself out. There. I mean, all that stuff that's going around in our heads, it becomes limiting. And before you know it, it starts to become our comfort zone. It becomes our excuse for not excelling at stuff and uh, it took me about i'm 55 it took me 53 years to figure this crap out and i'm still figuring it out because yeah, trust right. me i can go on a golf course and i can't get to that place that i got to and i made that eagle but, so. this is good uh with, with that uh, i think it's um it's worth noting that this is the first time um if you've come this far as ever included 350 somethings so uh um this is uh this pleases me uh there's a lot of wisdom on this call uh thanks to you guys um and um i can't promise you that we're going to cut all that out we might uh, we might start the podcast back with your your birdie or your eagle uh from the weekend and since we're talking about winning yeah. let me introduce you uh in this way uh wes you and i met last summer 
when we were paired together at a men living pickleball tournament, which we won. Um, and I say that for the benefit of Todd Adams and, and Mike Rosen and Frank Nalgo, who think they're going to dethrone us one day. Um, but uh, but it, you, we had an immediate bond. We were actually paired with a third partner. So we rotated. Our third partner was Eric Treese, and all three of us have been military off or we were all served in the military. Um, I'm hoping we can start with you just telling us a little bit about your service in the army. Sure. So I, it's wouldn't be fair to start without saying that, you know, I'm the son of a retired army general. Uh, I grew up going to 17 different schools, kindergarten through college all over the world. So uh, I wasn't necessarily a great student. I uh, wasn't because I wasn't smart. It took me a while to figure that out. It was because I was lazy and didn't want to do the homework. And I made the connection that, hey, if I do the homework, I can uh, I can get the grades. But I uh, ended up going to a military school for my senior year of high school. That was my third high school, not because I got kicked out, but two years in Germany, one year in Hampton, Virginia. Uh, my dad left a brochure for Valley Forge Military Academy on his desk. I saw it. And I'm like, hey, dad, can we go to Valley Forge Military Academy? I'd like to check it out. We were living in Hampton, Virginia at the time. He's like, yeah, I think we could probably do it. About 25 years later, I figured out that, wait a minute, that was like a fishing expert. <laughs> <laughs> he put the bait down. <laughs> I went for it. And there I am at Valley Forge Military Academy. So that was my senior year of high school. I, I did well. I, I did well in my senior high school. It's amazing what happens when somebody makes you go to study hall for three hours every evening and there's just and there's rules. So that uh, really started me kind of on a path. I mean, if I back up just a little bit, somehow I got selected to go to American Legion Boys State between my junior and senior year in, uh, in high school. That was a transformational experience too, because all those things that I was telling myself that I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I went with some of the smartest, brightest young people in the state of Virginia, and I competed, and I competed well. So went to Valley Forward, senior of high school. Where am I going to go to college? Well, first three years, I didn't study much, so my options were somewhat limited. Um, Valley Forward had a junior college. So wait a minute, I can go to a junior college. And oh, by the way, had an early commissioning program. I can be a second lieutenant in the United States Army after my sophomore year in college. Wow. I mean, I don't have to go to four This this is a good deal. Then you mean they'll pay for me to get my bat? This is a great deal. So applied for a scholarship, um, won it, and uh, stayed there through my uh, sophomore year in college. The last year there, I got to be the cadet regimental commander. For those of you that aren't military, what that means is for the entire year at the military school, those 700 cadets, I walked in the room, everybody stood up. I walked down the street, people saluted me. They didn't salute me fast enough, I made them do push-ups. That was <laughs> just kind of the way that uh, the way it was at, at a military school. Um, finished there, got commissioned, transferred to George Washington University in DC to get my bachelor's degree. Um, while I was there, I served in the DC National Guard for uh, for two years, the military police platoon leader. And uh, this may come up later, but my best friend um, in GW and going to school and everything later became the acting secretary of defense for Donald Trump. But that's a whole nother whole nother story. Um, so left uh, left 
George Washington University went on active duty and served for eight years in a bunch of schools in Georgia, jumped out of airplanes, uh, ranger school, went to Korea, served on the demilitarized zone as a platoon leader, came back to Washington, D.C., had the honor and privilege of serving the Army's Honor Guard, and I commanded the Army's Honor Guard company. That's the Tomb Guards, the Tomb of the Unknowns, the uh, Ceremonies of the White House, the Pentagon. Tomb of the Un that, that was, those were all my guys. So uh, that was a really cool assignment. Went to Kentucky for some schools, went to Germany, and then I got out. So that's the Reader's Digest version. I love it. Um, can, uh, can you, I don't know the answer to this. I should probably yeah. by now, but um, uh, why did you decide to get out? Great question. So my dad, military officer, I was born at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. My whole life had been about the military. And at that point, we're talking 1993, 94 in Germany, um, different time. Um, and it was different because you had leaders who were now generals that served as lieutenants and captains in Germany during the Cold War preparing to fight this communist horde, the Warsaw Pact that was gonna come across the folded gap and invade Western Europe. And there's gonna be this big, that's the way that all the general officers trained. And so even after the wall came down, even after there was no more Warsaw Pact, we were still training to fight this enemy that didn't exist. And as a young captain at the time, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And oh, by the way, let's plan to fight these low intensity conflict battles that may happen in Somalia. So we're doing everything and it was just miserable. And oh, by the way, we're downsizing. So the people that I was working for were majors, lieutenant colonels in some cases, and most of them were kind of at that 12, 14 year mark where they're afraid for their lives because they've been in too long to get out. Right. Um, and if they get in trouble and don't get the right performance evaluation, uh, they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna get kicked out. But what are they gonna? So it's it's horrible working for somebody that's just scared of their own shadow. Yeah, that's that, so that's why I got out. I want to do something different. It's funny. I got out in '98, but for very similar reasons. Right? Uh, it was post Cold War, pre 9/11. The enemy was a little bit nebulous yeah uh the the we were deployed at a rate that was extraordinary despite that and you're trying to lead a bunch of guys and convince them that everything we're doing is worth them being away from their wives and their babies it's it, it was really it was really challenging but i'll also say that i was struggling around that time to figure out like w when i do get out if i do get out what what is it i do and so did you have a clear uh, plan? Yeah, I, I tell people this, and if they're younger than about 40, they're like, what? So I was in Germany, and I wanted to get out. So what I had to do was I had to type up a resume on a word processor, not a type <laughs> word processor. I had to print it out I had to fold it, put an envelope, I had to put an address on it, put a stamp on it, and I had to mail it from Germany to the United States to a potential employer to convince them to potentially write me back 
and maybe set up. So the point I'm making out, there was no email, there was no internet. It just was hard. So I ended up getting five interviews. Uh, two of the jobs were in Chicago and one was in Atlanta. One was in Gainesville, Florida. The other one I think was in Washington, DC. Those are job offers. No, those were interviews. Those weren't job offers. The best job offer I got was here in Chicago. I had another one in Gainesville, Florida. It kind of became this issue like, hey, if it doesn't work out, because I'm not sure how I'm going to be as a civilian, you know, I've never done this before. It's better to be stuck in Chicago than in Gainesville, Florida. (laughs) I took the job working for a large conglomerate manufacturing company in the Chicagoland area as a sales rep selling packaging equipment to manufacturing companies. And oh, by the way, I'd never been in a manufacturing plant. <laughs> it really, really did give me some great training. And uh, that started uh, me becoming on my journey to become a, as my wife would say, a collector of careers. Ah, well, I, I, I want to get into that about what you're doing now and your work with yeah. your wife, et cetera. But I, I, I got to ask, like, what, how did you convince that employer that you would be a good salesman? So they asked me a very similar question. I remember, uh, remember it very clearly. And uh, the way I answered is like, so how do you, what makes you think you can sell packaging equipment? And I said, well, you know, here's the thing as a, as a company commander in the army with 200 soldiers and, you know, five lieutenants, four platoon leaders, one executive officer, part of what I do is uh, part of what I did is my job is to make the people above us believe that those lieutenants are the best possible lieutenants in the regiment. Why? Because they're all being evaluated. And so they're being evaluated with all the other lieutenants in the regiment. And so I wanted my lieutenants to be rated as the best. And the way to do that is, you know, I've got to make sure that I'm presenting the very best aspects of them and why that's important and why they should get the highest performance evaluation. And so if you think about it, um, is that selling? It's persuading. It's convincing. It's data. It's uh, it's thinking through the strategy to put that lieutenant in the position where they can uh, where they can shine and preparing them so that when they do go in front of the regimental commander that they know what they're doing. So rehearsing that with them. And I said, you know, what? I, I didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, <laughs> but. At the end of the day, I think that relates very well to convincing somebody to spend money on your products, especially if there's a value proposition to be had, especially if we're not selling on price and we're selling on, hey, this is everything we have to offer. Why wouldn't you want to why wouldn't you want to buy from us? And, you know, my answer now is probably a lot better than it was then. And if we're all being completely honest, uh, I wasn't a great sales rep. I, I didn't understand it. But you know what? I. I learned. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the way I explain it is it's kind of like a uh, kind of like a curve. You could hire somebody that had sales experience and they would come in, you know, at a higher level than me, but their growth trajectory is going to be relatively flat. You hire me, I'm coming in at a lower knowledge base, but I guarantee you that that mentality that says, hey, I'm never going to quit. Rangers lead the way. Don't leave anybody behind. Complete the mission. 
in a short period of time that I'm going to cross that at point where I've surpassed them uh, and the trajectory is just going to keep going. And that is that confidence? Is that bravado? I don't know what it is, but that's sort of uh, the way that most infantry guys are wired. Well, and I think, I mean, having, having kind of grown up professionally in sales as well, I think, and, and now watching my daughter do it, I think, you know, it's product knowledge is important. Um, but it's kind of about people. It's like about relationships and engagement and listening. Um, uh, and I, back to persuasion, I guess that's part of it too. But, um, you know, if you can reflect those kinds of skills, I mean, I think you can, you can be successful. My, my, my daughter, who's, who's 27 is, uh, early in her career is actually doing very well in sales. And part of it, she's like, I don't really get it. And I'm like, well, <laughs> well, you're doing the work and, and then you kind of know how to engage people. And, um, it's so true. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's such a, such a big part of it. Yeah. I think that ability to connect with people, I think the military, my experience growing up, I think that, Played a role in it. I mean, if you if you ever have to be that new kid in school that walks in in the middle of the school year and everybody's kind of looking at you, either shrink back or you become an extrovert. I, I chose to become an extrovert, so I think I can pretty much talk to just about anybody. But he, here was the other thing. Here's it. I did that job for two years and I got promoted in that company to be a regional sales manager. And I'm convinced what did it is that. I did what I said I was going to do for my customers and for my boss. And most, people, most people don't. So somebody says, hey, we follow up when the client says, hey, will you get back to me on that? And, you know, I remember distinctly this one time customer down in, uh, in Piatone. I, uh, I didn't. And uh, he called me on it. I didn't get back. And I said, you know what? Um, I, I am so sorry. I, I dropped the ball on that. I said I was going to do something, and I didn't do it. I will get this answer to you um, as soon as we hang up this call. And he said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Most people will try to BS me. I appreciate your honesty. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. You know, that, that goes a long way. I think people can be forgiving if they know you're being, uh, know you're being honest. Wes, I, uh, <clears throat> I've also had the pleasure of meeting your son, Wesley, uh, who is an impressive young man. Um, mm. And uh, uh, I, I have to give you and your wife, who I, whom I've never met, a lot of credit. And, and maybe we get around to talking about parenting so you can mm. reveal some secrets to us. But um, at one point, I shared with you how cool I thought it would be for us to be able to have your dad, you and your son on the show together. Mm. And, you know, you shared, unfortunately, your dad's health wouldn't allow that. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, I mean, not just to me, but your, your dad, I'll spoil it a little bit, but your dad uh, is a hero uh, of this country and uh, would, would love for you to tell our listeners um, about your dad. Yeah, thanks for that. It kind of makes me uh, tear up a little bit just uh, just talking about him. And thank you for those comments about our oldest son. We've got three kids. Our daughter's 28, uh, married uh, to a great human being. Um, and they have two beautiful daughters, uh, 28 months and then a four-month-old. And then uh, Wesley, who you've met, and then Sam is our youngest. He'll be, uh, he'll be 21 uh, later this month. 
And uh, him and eight of his fraternity buddies are renting a couple of hotel rooms downtown. And what could possibly go wrong? With that? <laughs> yeah. Um, but back to my dad. Well, well before before Wes answers, because I, I, I know this is going to be a good story. I have met Ingrid. And oh, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I have to I have to say, yeah. I mean, she's pretty special. So. Sean was my, uh, Sean, get it out there. Sean was uh, the cool yoga instructor because until I met him going into the yoga, the yoga studio, I'd like look both ways to make sure no one saw me. Because <laughs> you can lose some street cred, but then there's Sean, really cool, yeah, Northeastern New England voice, just kind of you know, talking us through the flow. And I'm like, this dude's cool. And then I get to meet him through the tribe. And this is just uh, just something special. But yeah, my, my wife is really the one you want to talk to because she is uh, she is an amazing one. Been married for 32, 32 years in September. That's great. So you can that tell she's patient. Yeah. So just wanted to get that out there. So, so your dad. Yeah. So my dad. Um, well, you can't see it because, uh, but uh, I'd hold up the book that he wrote, and uh, it's probably a good place to start because, uh, you know, my I've got four older sisters and no brothers. Don't judge me. Four <laughs> older sisters and no brothers. Um, so about hmm, 20 years ago, probably, we said, hey, you know what? You've done some pretty amazing stuff. And when I say amazing stuff, my dad enlisted in the Army at the tail end of World War II, fought in a segregated unit in the Philippines. And I have to explain that to some of the younger audience members. Um, so the military, when my dad enlisted, was segregated by law. If you're a Black person, you're in one unit. If you're a white person, you're in another unit. And uh that's the way it was. And so when people and getting a little bit ahead of myself here, people talk about systemic racism and how it you know, may not exist. Like, no, it, it, it really did. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. My dad's 95 now, but segregated unit in, uh, in World War II, um, got out for a while, got back in right before the Korean War, fought in a segregated unit in the Korean War. And that was segregated until about halfway through the war. And by the way, my dad was shot twice in Korea and survived. But um, the President uh, Truman desegregated the military in the middle of the Korean War. And people wonder why. Well, it wasn't for social reasons. It was because we were getting our butts kicked. We got blocked into the Pusan perimeter kind of on the south coast of uh of the peninsula and uh, we had to refit and we couldn't take time to figure out, Hey, black guys, you go here, white guys, you go here. No, we put them all together. You know what they figured out? They actually fought pretty well together because here's what happens when you're cold, tired, hungry, miserable, afraid for your life and homesick. You don't care what color the person is, as long as they're going to help you out, as long as they're going to watch your back. But so he uh, fought in the Korean War, stayed in, uh, fought in Vietnam in the 101st Airborne Division, um, you know, really uh, famed uh, unit, uh, 2nd, 17th Cavalry Regiment, uh, movie Hamburger Hill was basically about his brigade in, uh, in Vietnam, but stayed in after that, ended up retiring as a 
three-star general, commanded the 1st Cavalry Division in Fort Hood, Texas, commanded the Army 7th Corps in, uh, in Germany. And, you know, for most people, that would be a distinguished career to start off as an enlisted guy in World War II and to retire after the middle of the Cold War as a three-star general. That's pretty amazing. That wasn't it, though. He uh, later went on to become the director of the U.S. Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance in the State Department, and then went on to become the director of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. That wasn't enough. He became the president of Prairie View A&M University, historically black college in Houston, just outside of Houston, uh, Texas. And then if that wasn't enough, he was the CEO of the Washington, D.C. public school system. So that's why I don't live in Washington, D.C. Those are some big shoes to fill. <laughs> yeah, big shoes, like epically big shoes, historically yeah. big shoes. Um, yeah, what? I mean, I, I got to say, just point out, like, so he, he had two Purple Hearts. He had two Silver Crosses. I mean, what it's, I'm not, you know, he is a legitimate uh, hero um, for all the things, including the education piece. But Sean, go ahead. No, I just, it's so, it's so it occurs to me, and, and as you were telling, uh, if you will, your origin story earlier, earlier on, if your dad was advocating for, for you to be in the service, I know he let, you know, he had the, the Valley Forge brochure on his desk, but was he proactively advocating for you to do that? And, and then once you did enter the service, what was your relationship like as you, as you were in the army? Yeah, great questions and a couple of different ways to answer it. No, he didn't advocate for me to go in, which is probably why I went in. If he had advocated, (laughs) I would have have gone the other way. That's just the way I was wired. And as I'm saying that, it kind of explains my boys a little bit. (laughs) But um, in terms of the military, so here's the thing. Uh, The worst thing that anyone could do when I join the military was say, hey, you're General Becton's son. Yeah. Uh, Because then the assumption is, hey, you're getting something because of who your dad is. And I went out of my way to correct him. No, I'm Lieutenant Becton or no, I'm Captain Becton. Um, I had a I had somebody during the first Gulf War in so going to becoming an infantry officer, going to ranger school, going through all the stuff that I went through. And then not getting into combat is kind of like being that backup quarterback that never gets in the game. And so when uh, the first Gulf War happened, uh, I was stationed in Washington, D.C. in the old guard. We were prepared to bury all the guys that came back. Fortunately, there were not a lot of them. But um, it was hard for us. It was hard to sit there and and watch our our peers uh, go over there and you know, do heroic things, which we all thought we should be doing. So I actually had somebody say to me, oh, you know, congratulations. Your dad must have pulled some strings to keep mm. you from going over to uh, the Gulf War. And I'm like, I'm trying everything I can do to get there. And again, everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, glad I didn't go um, in hindsight. But at the time, I thought differently. So mm-hmm. hopefully that answers the question. Well, and, and were you guys... Um connected during your years of service? I mean, were you having discussions about things? Was he providing advice? I mean, I'm just yeah, curious so I, about that. Yeah. So he retired in 1983. I got commissioned in 85. So mm-hmm. um, he commissioned me. I think that might've been the last time I actually saw him in uniform. Okay. Um, but 
you know, it was, uh, we, at first, no, because, again, I'm that stubborn lieutenant that I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. I'd call his friends who were also generous. Sure. But yeah. I wouldn't call him. Mm-hmm. But then it got to that point where, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with, hey, you know, do I do what's best for the platoon or do I take care of what my company commander wants me to do when the two are not connected? And, you know, I, I remember him giving me some great advice about that, but he was so wise and I wish I had an ounce of that. He didn't tell me what to do. Mm, that's great. He, he didn't tell me what yeah. to do. He didn't try to lead me in any particular direction. He didn't try to you know, didn't try to fix things for me. And, you know, it got awkward. So true story, true story. So I am at this point, I'm in the old guard, we're at the Pentagon, I'm the ceremonies officer. My job is I've got an earpiece, I'm coordinating the whole ceremony, I'm saying, hey, go. And so you've got the visiting head of government from some country that's there doing ceremony, and we're about ready to get started. And so at this point, General Colin Powell is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and General Gordon Sullivan was the chief of staff of the army. So General Gordon Sullivan knew me when I was like 10 years old and he's talking to me. And then General Powell, who, you know, if you read my dad's book, General Powell calls my dad his mentor. And I've met General Powell's son and I are a few years apart. We've known each other. So I know General Powell. So I'm sitting there talking, trying to get the ceremony started. And General Sullivan's here, General Powell's here. And they're just messing with me. They know that I'm not a good ceremony. We're just having a blast. And my boss, the commander, is standing out on the parade field, like, are we going to get started? What is Beckton doing over there talking to the leader? And so I'm like, sirs, um, I have to go. <laughs> That's a great I, story. I gotta go. And so go give the signal ceremony start. True story. I love that. I love that. Yeah, but, there yeah. are there are no limits to the sort of the 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 sort of like razzing that happens in the military, right? Like even these these high you know big hitters were like, we're gonna fuck with with uh, yeah. with, with so Captain. Beth. My dad has a great story. Again, this these are names that won't make sense, but. Creighton Abrams, uh, general who the Abrams tank is named after, oh, yeah, was one of my dad's was one of my dad's mentors. And uh, my dad tells a story about when he was uh, the master of ceremonies for some event. And at that point, he had these uh, like five by seven cards that he had his notes on. And so my dad goes up to say something, leaves his five by seven cards there. And uh, General Abrams, at that point, chief staff of the army, just starts shuffling them. <laughs> just starts <laughs> shuffling the cards, getting out of work. I just look at my dad. My dad's like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> just starts messing with him. He's like, here you go. <laughs> That's genius. You know what? It, it, when you've got those kind of relationships, um, it becomes special and, you know, to be vulnerable and to be authentic and to have fun. It just inspires those people that, that are around you Yeah, about that later. Cause that's sort of what I do for a living now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That connection of actually being able to have fun and laugh with someone who, who works for you or whatever is, is huge. Uh, Got to step back for a second. So Sean asked about how your dad parented you when you were active duty. What about yeah. when you were little? How is yeah. that? Because yeah. he was he was deployed a lot, and he was a big hitter, and uh, yeah. had a really big job. So, 
Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're said there's nothing off limits. So my, my dad and I, we, we had, we, our relationship was a little, was a little different because he just wasn't around a lot. And mm -hmm. I, I resented that, but you know, it, it's a choice And we, we ended up talking about it and it makes so much sense to me. You know, he wanted to make a better life for us and his way of making a better life for us was to, was again put it in perspective his father was a janitor which in philadelphia at the time actually wasn't a bad job for a for a black man uh it was actually a pretty good job a janitor took care of a building in Bryn Mawr, pennsylvania uh, my dad ended up going to a fairly integrated uh high school um and that that gave him that gave him some uh that gave him gave him a different perspective on things my dad's perspective is he wanted to wanted to be the best that he could so that we could have a better life, which meant that he had to be, had to be gone. Now my mom, uh, we lost her a couple of years ago, but just an amazing woman. And uh, yeah. And another life, she probably would have been a, she probably would have been a doctor instead of being a nurse. So, yeah. Yeah. So. I was, that, that was my suspicion that, that, uh, that you have a mother who probably deserves her own Wikipedia page. Cause she must've been pretty special. She, uh, Louise Becton is, uh, was, she is something special. And, uh, you know, that, that was, that would be me saying that as her only son. Uh, but what she did after uh, my dad retired, she got invited to the National War College to teach classes for general officers, like spouses of general officers to teach them etiquette and to teach them how mm. to show up that, that mm. that's who my mom was and my mom also you know in her 70s was a uh, was a hospice nurse uh she worked at a hospice hospice of northern virginia wow and uh if you've ever worked around nurses you have to be someone special to be able to deal with death and dying and my mother just uh, yeah just an amazing amazing human being but yeah my, my relationship with my dad it was uh it was not great until probably i called him one day and i said hey my son said he hates my guts and my dad fell out of his chair laughing <laughs> And I'm like, what are you doing? I I'm crushed. This is the worst day ever. He's like, ah, he'll grow out of it. And you know what? That's when I'm like, all right. So it sort of makes sense, right? Um, we all have to go through this stuff where, you know, I've got to prove I'm my own guy and I've got to do it on my own. And uh, then when that happens and I have my own son and it's back at me, I'm like, dad, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for everything I ever did, said, thought. I apologize. Yeah. So, so I went in and talk about Wikipedia pages. I went and took a look at your dad's Wikipedia page earlier today, General Beckton's page, and and two things that um, were interesting to me. First is we actually have the same birthday, ah. June 29th. Yeah. Um, but your dad's a Republican, and uh, or at least that's what it says on his Wikipedia page, um, as is General Powell. Uh, not to go deep into politics, you um, as you want. but, but, um, it gives, give me some, or give our listeners some perspective about your dad's politics. I think he worked for both, uh, Reagan and, and, um, HW as a FEMA director. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I can't necessarily speak for my dad um, in, in this case. You know, there's stuff in this book that uh, that sees very clear about it. But, you know, let's face it, the Republican Party of Reagan and Bush is not the Republican Party of today. Right. Right. Uh, back then, there were men and women of integrity that would stand up and they would they'd look, uh, look an arrogant SOB in the eye and say, we're not supporting you. And yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's not, um, the Republican party of today. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I always hesitate to do this, especially when it's recorded. So I'll start this by saying my facts may be off a little bit, but do your own research. Um, but the Republican party, um, had the black vote, uh, for a whole bunch of years in our country. Yeah. Yep. And uh, really wasn't until John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Kennedy calling, uh, was again, I may get this wrong, one of the Kennedys, either Bobby or JFK, called Coretta Scott King after, after Martin Luther King was, was murdered. And, and that sort of started the, the transition from Republican to Democrat. But, you know, if you go back and look through the history, I mean, it wasn't the, the Democrats did not have a lock on the black vote back then. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I think that for a lot of uh, a lot of people um, at the time, uh, you know, the Republican Party, um, Republican Party was much different than it is today. Mm -hmm. And uh, it looked out for the needs of all Americans, yeah. not just black Americans. And yeah. so, yeah, you really saw that transition in the, in the early sixties. Mm -hmm. And again, I I've got that wrong. So, yeah. 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 I've got that. I date. think it was JF or uh, Bobby did Bobby. the big speech in Indianapolis yeah. too. Yeah. the night of the night of the assassination. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, 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 that's right. Yep. Well, uh, um, so Wes, you know uh, about me that I work for a nonprofit whose mission yeah. is 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 to pretty squarely try to work to reestablish equity in public education or education yeah. period, yeah. and um, which is probably explains my sort of extra fascination with your dad pursuing the education bit at towards the end of his career. Um, I I, I got to share. I heard a quote recently, which I just, I, I love, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, and I can't remember who said it, but, but the quote was, the purest form of anti-racism is teaching Black kids. And, um, and so I work in the education field, and really what we should, you, you could easily say teaching kids of color or teaching kids who are, um, you know, poor kids or, or, or whatever, but anti-racism uh, is, I just love that, that we have to sort of tackle that at that really fundamental level um what, what was was like was your dad drawn to that um line of work or getting involved in dcps for example uh was that informed by his childhood because he grew up you know he, he is an older gentleman and he grew up a long time ago yeah. um, when yeah. things were even worse yeah um the reason why my dad got involved in those two educational endeavors, Prairie View and, uh, and DC public school systems, both uh, organizations were broken. And my dad had a sort of a reputation of being a turnaround guy. Mm -hmm. So uh, Prairie View was in really bad, uh, really bad financial straits. And, you know, my dad, 
my dad canceled the football program Ooh. in Texas. Ooh. You don't do that. He, he was burned in effigy. <laughs> it, was, it was bad. But you know what? If you look at where Prairie View is now, even the current president would say the decisions that were made back in the uh, in the early 90s saved the school. Um, you know, and again, those were hard decisions, and that's just kind of who my dad was. Uh, he was willing to stand up to bullies and say, hey, this isn't right, and this is what we're going to do, and really didn't care a lot for his own, tooting his own horn at all. It was all about the students. And when he got to the D.C. public schools, again, uh, my facts may be off a little bit, so do your own research. But at that point, the District of Columbia had been taken over by a control board. Uh, it was Mayor Barry um, and uh, the federal government, D.C. already gets its, its funding from the federal government. But they basically left Marion Barry with maybe parks and recreation. That was it. But the school system, police more, everything else was under a financial control board. And the head of the financial control board, um, you know, asked my dad to come to a meeting and said to talk about, you know, the DC schools. And my dad went down there thinking, oh, yeah, we can give you a few names. Like, no, we want you to do it. Mm. <laughs> at this point, my dad was, uh, was at an advanced age. Um, and he asked me, and again, this is just kind of crazy, um, but he asked me what, what, what I thought about it. And I'm like, you know, he asked my sisters too, but, you know, hey, my dad's asking me. And I said, you know, what would, uh, what would you, or how would you feel if you could have done something to change the trajectory of some of these kids' lives, but you didn't do it? Would that sit well with you? And I'm not think I'm not saying that's the reason why he did it, but you know he felt like he could make a difference, and he ran into a buzzsaw. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he ran into some buzzsaws. Um, but he took the job, and you know he he made a difference. And uh, you know one funny story, one sad story. There's a movie called Waiting for Superman, and if you watch that movie. Um, there's a there's a piece that was cut from public information, public video of my dad, and it's in the movie. So my mom and dad go to the movie theater to see the movie. They're sitting down watching it, and boom, there he is. And, you know, if you watch the movie, it, it's hard to tell if it's in a good light and not so good light. I think it's in a fairly good light the way he's presented. And it, it was, hey, even a retired general veteran of three wars couldn't fix this mess. Uh -huh. you know? But um, that's sort of the way it was uh, was presented. So that's the funny story. The not so funny story is... Uh, is he would mentor a kid. He'd pick a kid, you know, go through this, go through the, his his command staff and find a kid every, you know, every semester that he tried to mentor. And it went well for a couple semesters. And there was one kid that just stopped showing up. And this is sad. And there, there's some legs and tentacles to this. Um, but the reason why the kid stopped showing up is because the mother did not want this kid exposed to something that he could never attain. Uh. Just let that sit for a minute. So the mother did not want the kid to be exposed to something that she didn't believe was realistic for her black son. And uh, yeah, that's just a very sad story. And it, it's very sad. Very sad.
Yeah, that's that that is really heavy. And you know, you can't blame the mother. I mean, that she was doing that out of love, but the fact that the conditions were set up that she believed that to be true and that we weren't giving that kid uh the mm-hmm. same quality of education is heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and Wes, I mean, you've done you've also dedicated a lot of your your time and skills to education as well. I mean, yeah. you've on the boards of I think NIU Lewis. Elmhurst University, right? Um, I was the chair of the board at Northeastern Illinois. Northeastern. I've been on the board at uh, Elmhurst University for about 14 years. Um, I got my master's degree from Lewis and Mm -hmm. I uh, taught there. I was on the board at St. Joe's High School, which unfortunately is closing uh, this year. But yeah, so I've had a passion for education, which again is kind of ironic because I wasn't a great student. But (laughs) when I got out of the military, I I wanted to I wanted to be a teacher and Mm -hmm. they had this troops to teachers program. And we had one daughter at the time and I applied for it, got accepted. And I looked at how much I was going to get paid and like, I can't do that. So that's what that's what started the uh, the sales route. Mm-hmm. Did, did, did you, um, uh, when Wesley, uh, I assume Wesley's still headed towards that residency, uh, not at Drexel, where's he going? So he's going to Temple. And if I can brag about my son for a minute, he is uh, my oldest son. I, uh, both of them are amazing human beings. Uh, the youngest one is uh, finishing up his senior year at University of Delaware, an environmental studies major, and he's having an unbelievable internship with a with a great company uh, here in Chicago, um, SET Environmental. My son, Wesley, my other son, Wesley, though, so he graduated from Middlebury College, great high-end liberal arts school, played football, captain the football team, got some great relationships uh, there, but went to work for Deloitte and doing great at Deloitte. He was killing it, highest evaluations, just very proud of him in Washington, D.C., but you know what? I, I think he got to this point where there was something inside him that said there's got to be more to life than just this. So he quit his job, enrolled in a master's program at Temple University in in Philadelphia, and he is going to be a Spanish teacher at um, at uh, one of the high schools in uh, in inner city Philadelphia, which ironically is uh, where my parents grew up in the mm-hmm. Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. Where I went to military school, so uh, just kind of, uh, just kind of ironic. I, I did. Did, yeah. did you and he have the conversation that uh, about your awareness when you considered uh, uh, teaching yourself? Like uh, Wesley, have you seen what the pay scale is going to be when you get to be teacher of record? You know, um, no, I, I, I we didn't have that. I told him that I thought about doing it, uh-huh. uh, but again, I'm, I'm sort of imitating my dad here. This is his passion. Why would yeah. I want to get in the yep. way of that? And yep. you know, who knows where that's where that's going to take him? And if, when my spiritual side kicks in, you know, he's uh, he's on his own journey. And mm-hmm. uh, what a, I couldn't be prouder of him for wanting to do that. And you know, during COVID, not only did he pass the Spanish proficiency, Spanish language proficiency examination to be allowed to teach Spanish. But he also became an ENT firefighter paramedic. Uh, did that all on his own during COVID. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a proud dad. 
Yeah, you should be, because uh, he he impressed the heck out of me. Um, and I don't want <clears throat> it to sound like I was just discouraging people from entering the classroom. Uh, <laughs> things have things have gotten better. Um, Hopefully not. It's what you. I mean, it's your work. It's what yeah, you do. Yeah. That would be a bad move. Yeah. Well, I for the record, Wesley's uh, in this program where it's a, a residency based program, so it's it's the right way to train teachers and and. I think he'll hit the ground running. He'll be an effective day one teacher. I have no doubt he'll stay in the classroom longer. And I'm sure for that kid, I say kid, I shouldn't say kid for that young man. Um, I'm sure that, you know, there's all sorts of possibilities where he could end up a superintendent someday, which by the way, remains one of the hardest jobs in the world. Without question, without question. But I tell you what, um, you know, the best advice, best parenting advice I ever got is uh, shut your pie hole. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to hear if Kathy Cassani agrees with that. <laughs> Seriously, sh shut your pie hole. Don't overcorrect stuff and just delight in your kids. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, when does, I, I, does when Ingrid that, carry the same, the same theories? Do you? She's the one I, who told me that. Oh, <laughs> But you've been trying for years to tell me that I just didn't listen. And unfortunately I didn't listen during the years when I probably should have listened, you know? So, so speaking of listening to your yeah. wife, how are you two as business partners? So, I mean, what has it been? Is it two, three years that you started your firm? Yeah, it's going on two years, going on two years. So uh, it, it's going great. So physically, I'm in the basement right now, and my wife is on the second floor, and that's most days. Um, and we both work from home. Uh, we have right now no clients in common. There may be a client where they need an assessment like a DISC or an EQ, and I'll administer that. Or one of my clients may need some resume or some uh, some LinkedIn prep help, and she may do that. For the most part, we have our own clients. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, we work independently. Um, and, and just for the listeners, can 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 you uh, tell them what you're doing? Sure. So I'm an executive coach. Um, I do work mostly with business owners, leaders that are feeling stuck or that want to grow. Um, my wife works as an executive, not as an exec coach, as a career coach. We're both certified through uh, through the International Coach Federation, ICF. But her niche is that young professional age group, specifically kids that maybe have graduated but haven't quite launched their careers yet, or those that have launched their careers and are now trying to figure out how to navigate that, uh, that corporate space. Um, she's also really gifted with moms that are trying to get back into the workforce. And uh, yeah, she worked at Elmhurst University for about 14 years, um, helping kids figure that out. And that translates really well into what she's doing now. And you know, we both love um, what we're doing. We can do it from anywhere. We've been very fortunate to be able to travel uh, with clients to different places and Literally, we can do this from uh, from San Juan, Puerto Rico, Santa Barbara, California, wine country in Oregon. And, uh, you know, it's it's just we're just very grateful to be uh, to be where we're at right now. I'm curious, what do you think is the greatest as an executive coach? What is the greatest thing that executives struggle with? Is there can you put can you can you put it to one at least the majority of coaches what they struggle with or executives struggle with? 
Yeah, most uh, most men struggle with this idea that they're not good enough. Mm. And uh, it can be as severe as, hey, I'm going into this board meeting as the president of this institution, and I'm convinced that it's just a matter of time before they open up door number two and they're going to bring out the real president. Mm. And uh, to, well, you know, I couldn't possibly say that because if I do, what are people gonna gonna think? And, you know, all those are thoughts that, that every guy has. And I, I tell all my clients this, that, you know, th- those thoughts are normal. You're entitled to have that thought. You can choose to have that thought. But how is that thought serving you? Is it serving you or is it getting in the way of you showing up as that that best version of yourself? And if it is getting in the way of you showing up as that best version of yourself, what's a different thought that you can have that might drive you to a different feeling or emotion, which will drive you to a different action? And that's the model. And I'm oversimplifying it because all of us have been the way we are for the number of years we've been alive and uh, seeing things a little bit differently. uh, You know, it it can be a challenge. And I I know I've got a coach. Uh, My coach uh, worked with me to help me see that the fear I had of starting and own my own business, um, you know, those fears were, I don't want to live under lower Wacker drive in a cardboard box. And that's what's going to happen if I quit my job and try to start a business. That's what I was telling myself. And he asked me, you know, a great question. So uh, how likely is that to happen? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, not really likely, but how much is that consuming your mind? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, a lot. So it's out of proportion. Mm-hmm. And so then he asked me another question, which I love to ask my clients, what's the best thing that could happen if you started your own business? Right. And it's amazing how that refires those neurosynapses to places that I wouldn't even let myself dream because of these other thoughts I had about being in that cardboard box under lower Wacker mm-hmm. drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Uh, I, I was listening to, uh, this is the second straight podcast, apologies, Sean, um, where I'm bringing up Brene Brown. But um, hey, I love her. Yeah, who no does? Apologies. Right? No apologies required. <clears throat> I think it was the the one where she was talking with Angela Duckworth, who is the researcher at University of Penn. There you go, right? Wes is holding up his uh, his uh, Brene book, the the gifts of imperfection. Um, so one of them, I don't remember which one, but they're both really bright, super bright women, intuitive, great researchers. But one of them, uh, you know, even from the mouths of great like researchers, come some of these little nuggets and one of them was talking about when they're making a hard decision they apply the rule of like five 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 or something like this and that your your article about making that eight foot eagle putt also made me think of the same lesson which is you think to yourself how much is is this decision going to matter to me in five minutes how much is it going to matter to me in five weeks five months and five years right so you miss that eight foot eagle putt and you're going to forget about it in five days or at least you're not going to stew on it um but 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 i but it but the reason that made me think of this is because i think all of us not just men but we all worry so much about the 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 impact or the blowback or the ramifications of 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 a decision and we worry about making the wrong decision to the point of paralysis so um it sounds like you help people a lot with that and does ingrid as well 
She does. And, you know, again, just being honest, she's much better at it than, uh, than I am. Um, but all of, uh, all of us, um, all of us struggle, struggle with that, that, that thought, you know, it's, uh, and yeah, I, I think that's about the best way to say it. Yeah. I want to say it's interesting before we go that you thought it would take him five days to get over the <laughs> rather than rather than five minutes so i think it's interesting is that are you, is that you're talking about wes or you're talking about yourself <laughs> i mean you can you can imagine walking around for a good part of a week thinking i i well, the worst thing would be if you left it down anything short it's right just golf i know it's i mean i golf. my whole attitude's changed to golf and that's a whole nother that's for a whole nother podcast but um, you know what? Golf is a metaphor for, for I, life for me. Exactly. And, That's why my attitude has changed about it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the uh, how long would I have been thinking about it? Probably not long because of something I, I work with my clients on. It's it's not being attached to the outcome. Right. So because we can we can frame it that if I make that putt, I'm a winner. If I miss that putt, I'm a loser. Yeah. But how often do we do that in life? Well, if I make it to that light and it stays green, I'm a winner. If I go to that light and it turns red, well, God hates it. Again, we, it's all those things. Or, you know what, if this person says, yes, I'm good. If they say no, I'm bad. No, don't be attached to the outcome. Because, yeah. again, the coaching methodology is, you know, when you're operating, resonating at this level, it's everything you do is an opportunity to evaluate and learn. There are no mistakes. And so, you know what? I, I, I miss that putt. I, I, I miss the putt. If I'm still thinking about that putt when I take the next shot, I'm not putting all of my energy into that shot. And that's, that's how guys go through life. Well, you know, I, I, I lost my job five years ago. So, you know, I got to be this way now. If I'm not this way now, then I might lose my job again. What is what happened? How does that relate to you showing up in any amount of time, any amount of space you're giving that thought in your brain is getting in the way of you showing up as that best version of yourself? Well, it, it, it's funny, though, because, I mean, we can know the right answer or the right way to behave or the right, right way to react. But doing it is a different thing than knowing what it is. And and I, I uh, this occurred to me as I, I've been trying to teach my 16 year old daughter how to drive. I can explain to her hundreds, thousands of times about the steps you go through when you turn left at a traffic light, but what she needs is reps, right? She needs to do it multiple times. She needs to practice it. And I feel like, you know, these lessons that we're talking about here are things that, that they're, they're muscles almost like we, we can get better at them. We, and we have to be thoughtful about them, but, but I still think a lot of this stuff requires a real practice. Do you, do you, would you disagree with that? Well, I, I'll just say that to Wes's point about not being attached to the to the outcome, we're conditioned from birth to be attached to the outcome. So, so to have to go through reps to unlearn that, a, absolutely, absolutely. I don't know, Wes, if you would agree with that, but I, you know. So it, it it's 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 mindset, yeah. And uh, you know, our neurosynapses are programmed to fire a certain way, and you're right, probably since birth. And the idea is 
if you can change the thought, you can change the feeling or emotion. If you do that, you can change the action. And here's the thing. Most guys don't want to talk about feelings. I've actually lost some clients when I first started doing this because I'd ask them, hey, you know, what are you feeling right now? Like, I don't have feelings. I'm like, okay, so have you ever been frustrated? Well, yeah, I'm frustrated all the time. You ever been angry? Yeah, I'm, I'm angry all the time. Guess what? Those are emotions, but there's always a thought that's driving you to that emotion. And if you can capture that thought and change the thought, you can change the outcome. So, you know, the example would be, I'll use me, not you, but when my daughter was learning how to drive, I actually burst a blood vessel in my eye because I, <laughs> I mean, it was bad. And you know what? The thought could be, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, I'm going to die. My daughter's going to hit something. I'm going to die. How does that thought make me feel? Well, it makes me feel scared. And what do I do when I'm scared? Well, I tend to lash out and I tend to yell and I tend to scream. Okay. What's a different thought I could have? You know what? What a blessing it is that I have the resources to be able to teach my daughter how to drive. What a blessing that is. Well, how's that make me feel? Well, you know, kind of makes me feel grateful. And what happens when I'm grateful? What's what are my actions? Oh, when I'm grateful, I, I like to serve and I like to give and I like to, you know, I, I like to compliment people. You know, again, it's subtle, but you show up differently. So is it repetition? Yeah, it's repetition because in my mind, I want to be scared. It's comfortable because when I'm scared, I'm, 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 the adrenaline is throwing through my system. I'm like this, but guess what that does to the, guess what it does to my poor daughter? Yeah. It, it actually, and there's some great research article called the neuroscience of trust. It actually goes in and if you're showing up with that frustration, with that anger, with that fear, it's going to have an impact on the other person. And what the study looked at is adrenaline cortisol versus oxytocin, which is that pleasure sense. And when you excrete that pleasure sense, it attracts other people mm. to you. Whereas that fear and anxiety produce uh, cortisone and adrenaline, which tend to repel people. I'm oversimplifying it. So do your own research. Well, I, so I, there, I, it's about, it's the, it's the point in the show, Sean, where I say to Wes, there's so much more ground I want to cover, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I want, like, partly, particularly because what you do, but also because it occurred to me at one point, I, I was like, I, I really want to know what, what Wes learned in the army that he carries on to this day, but you mm -hmm. just answered it for me. And it's the, it's the after action review. I feel like you're doing after action reviews all the time, which is a really thoughtful way to go through life. Like why, why did it get to me so much that I burst a blood vessel? You know, uh, well, you know, so anyway, um, I, I, I would love to um, sort of warn you that we will likely ask you for more of your time at some point. Well, thank you for that. I've enjoyed it. And time has uh, really flown by. And we agreed. We didn't yeah. get to talk about um, that, that topic that you wanted to talk about, which is uh, your race. <laughs> yeah. No, every guest we've had so far, we're like, well, you got to come back. So, I, I mean, we're going to have to do one every day with new guests and old I know, guests. I know, I, I know. Mean, because I'm with you. We have, we have more stuff to cover. And um, maybe Ingrid could join Wes next time. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if you had her on, uh, I, I, 
I wouldn't, you would think that I'm quiet. Well, it's, uh, uh, um, you mentioned how good she is at her job and, and I've yeah. never met either one of your wives, but I think it's, it's I only have one. I only well, have one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Either <laughs> you know what I mean, smart ass. Um, but it, it, it's clear to me that not only are we all in our fifties, but we all married up. So, uh, so yeah, we'd love to have her have her join. Yeah, she's pretty um, special. All right, so here's the deal, Wes. Uh, we try. We've been. We've missed one, uh, but we try to end all of our shows by asking four basic questions of our guests. Sure. Um, you may recall that that's what they used to do on that actors inside the actor studio. Okay. Um, Okay, so here they go. Just give me your 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 gut response to these things. Number one, what do you wish you could have told your 10-year-old self? Don't be afraid. Awesome. Number two, which was the most formative year of your life? 53. You got to remind me, how old are you now? 55? 55. Oh my God. See that, that that's a hard question to ask and not be able to ask follow-ups on because I'm begging to know. We'll get to that later. Um, number three, what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Wes made a difference in my life. Hmm. Finally, Wes, uh, do you have a mantra in life or even just a mantra these days? Um, I literally got quotes all over. <laughs> um, so I, I'll read the one that I, I, I love. This is Mark Twain. I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. Mm -hmm. I love that one for a minute. Yeah. I love that one. Um, that's probably the most poetic note possible that we could go out on, I would say. But, uh, uh, first of all, it's great to see your face and to catch up. It's been too long. And um, just thanks so much for making the time for us. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.